0: joy it is to uh, to be with you this morning and to have the serious privilege of opening up the word together. Uh, God, I feel like it's been such a special morning already that, uh, man, I, I wish that uh, Jake was here so we could share it with him, uh, but I'm glad that he's not so I can, uh, so I get to preach, so let's, uh, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, your kindness toward us is... Uh, Man, it's just unexplainable. It, it just—it's like it doesn't—it doesn't make sense to us um, because we're finite and we just don't get it. Thank you for the way that you love us when we—we're just—we're just messing up here and there and sinning here and there and and Lord, you just keep on coming after us. You keep on. Pursuing us, and thank you for that. Pray for us this morning, Lord, for your church, as we prepare to receive the word, Lord. Would you would you prepare our hearts to to hear from you, Lord, and to respond to what we hear out of the word, Lord? Would you help me? Would you help me to tell the truth, Lord? Would you help me to um to 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 speak what is true and and, and in keeping with with the word, and in your in keeping with your intention for us this morning, Lord? We. Um, we, we need you. We need your help. This is all about you. And I pray that uh, that, that would be our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before, before I get going, let me just tell you how I landed on uh, this topic. It's very simple. I stopped and thought, <clears throat> what happened after Jesus was resurrected? Like if, if we could just continue down that track from where we left off last week... What happened next, and how is it helpful to us? So, with that in mind, open up your Bibles to Acts two, verses twenty-nine through forty-seven. We're picking up a little down the line from um, from where Jason read for us earlier on. Acts two, verses twenty-nine through forty-seven. This is uh, this is the the tail end of Peter's sermon as he's preaching. to to this crowd that was assembled at that event of Pentecost that we read about earlier. Verse, Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to himself that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we're all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And there were added, that day, about 3,000 souls. Now our focus this morning, this is where we're going to be kind of jumping off from, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. There are, uh, there are many ways to win an argument. Um, using a red herring is among the most popular ways to do so in our day. If you're not sure what that is, that's okay. I'm going to unpack it for you as we go. What, what you need to know right now, the concept of the red herring, basically it's a tool used in an argument or literature or other, otherwise, storytelling. And there is a, there's a heavily contested backstory as to where the phrase even originates. One, one thing you need to know uh, is that red herring, uh, it, it refers to a type of fish, herring, that's been prepared, like preserved, kind of, prepared, preserved. In a certain way, I don't know anything about it, but what you need to know is this, and what I know is this. It's the important thing. It has a pungent aroma, apparently. I've never experienced it myself. So one of the backstories about the phrase red herring It claims that a long time ago, men are trying to train dogs to hunt foxes, hares, what have you. What they would do is they would take and they would drag some red herring kind of perpendicular across the trail of the original animal. And the idea was to see if the dog was disciplined enough to stay on that original trail or if you'd get distracted by a new, stronger smell and veer off course to follow it instead So similarly, in in an argument, in in literature, or otherwise, red herrings, when a person raises some kind of irrelevant side issue in order to divert attention from the primary issue at hand. So it's just simply a way to distract from the main argument or storyline by bringing up something else that's not completely relevant to the main issue at hand. Let me give you an example. I happen to be a fan of Jake Grogan. Uh, If I were... That's our lead pastor. If you're not familiar with him, Uh, if I were to make a case for him being gifted at at handling the word, okay, so I'm making, I'm setting up an argument. I might say something like, you know, Jake is he's a he's a pretty good preacher. He's got a, a Bible college degree and a seminary degree so he he's handling the text oftentimes in in the original language he's not only that he's been doing it for several years right he preaches weekly and has been for some time now and let okay so let that's my argument that's, i'm going down this way now let's say you disagree and you you raise an issue to to contest that something like this you say yeah but you know he's from up north right I mean, have you ever heard him pronounce the word frog? He's clearly not from here. You know what I'm saying? You, apparently you haven't, or you would know what I'm talking about. And, and I, I, bet, I bet he doesn't even own a pair of cowboy boots. Have you ever seen him wear a pair of cowboy boots? You, you, you see how that's just totally diverting to, to, a, to an irrelevant side issue. But here's the thing. People living in 2023... Love red herrings. That's why they're built into lots of the TV shows uh, that we watch, the movies that we watch, lots of the books that we read. And not only that, not only do we love them in, in that kind of content, but we, we often allow red herrings to win us over in arguments all the time. Remember, a red herring is not necessarily something that's untrue. It's probably more effective when it is true, but it's just something of lesser importance that we kind of allow to dominate the space instead of the main thing. I'd even take it a step further, and I'd say we love red herrings so much that a lot of times we prefer them. We prefer to follow them. They can be much more exciting than carefully staying on track of the sometimes faint aroma of what's true and helpful. But why? Why are we so quick to fall for these red herrings? I think it's in part, at least, because we've been conditioned to make choices, and to relate to the world overall based on what we like over and above everything else or at least what is comfortable to us or at least what we find the most interesting. And so we, we allow and even prefer ourselves to be derailed by a more pungent scent, right, regardless of how far it may take us off in a different direction. So I told you that to tell you this. Whether we see it or not... This is exactly what's happened within the church with regard to these passages of Scripture. That we It's really one large kind of section, but these passages we've looked at and that we are looking at this morning. And what I want you to see is that the way that we treat this passage is in many ways indicative of the way that we treat each other within the church at the expense of the actual aim of the Scriptures and of Christ in general. And so I just want to ask four questions this morning and hopefully give you an answer for them. Number 1, what's the true aroma of of this text that we're looking at? Number 2, why or excuse me, what do we allow to distract us from that specifically in the text? Number 3, where else do we see this happen in the church today? And number 4, what's the solution? What's the solution? So let's start out just jump right into number 1. What's the true aroma of the text? Now, now back up a little bit. I'm not asking what are the specific things that they're doing? Okay, I am asking, what's the air that they're breathing and why? So let's let's dial back in quickly to 242 through 47 and just take it a little, little bit at a time. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and and the prayers. Who is the they? Who is they? What does it mean? They, who, who is it? They devoted themselves. Later, it's going to say, "And all who believed were together and had all things in common." That's kind of kind of the group. So we're talking about all who believed. Now, now here's the thing: we don't know specifically who made up that group of people, but there are some things that we do know. We do know who was there for the original event that we read about earlier in the service. When, when Peter first starts preaching, there's a large swath of people. So Acts 2, 9 and 10, um, it, it says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, oddly specifics, uh, specific, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. So at the very least, they... Seems to represent people of all different kinds, from all different kinds of places, around sort of this part of the ancient world. And I think even earlier it it says people from from all parts of of the earth at that time. Do you know what people from vastly different backgrounds don't often do? Agree. Agree. So the wonder of the text, right, when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. You can see why. They're devoted together. Let's keep reading through to see what else happened. Keeping kind of that diversity of the crowd in mind. And notice the use of the word and, it kind of ties these things together. So, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributed the proteins to all that any had need. And day by day, attending the temple and uh, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what's the, what's the true aroma of, of the text that we're kind of supposed to be following here? What was that church marked by? Remember, not so much how did they specifically look, what were their specific practices, but what was the air they were breathing? And I'll tell you what it, what it looks like. And there's more to it. We're going to hit some of that as we go. But what that looks like, looks like is extreme... Unity in the midst of diversity marked by gladness and generosity. It said they had glad and generous hearts. What does glad mean? It's a brand of trash bags, right? We can do better. I'm I'm glad we made it out of that traffic. If, If you were building your judgment based on the way that we used it, you would think glad means that it barely registers emotionally, but it leans toward good. That's, that's not what's being said in this text. This word glad in, in the text, and this comes out of a, a commentary or something, a state of intensive joy, often implying verbal expression and body movement. For example, jumping, leaping, dancing. That's the way that it's used in other places in the New Testament. Glad. There's also that word generous. When we think generous, of course, we think they give a lot of money away. And they did do that too. But, but also... It's also translated, uh, that, that same word is also translated simplicity. Other translations render it as sincere. KJV calls it singleness of heart. So this church that's, that's described in the scripture as glad and generous, it's marked by exuberant, intensive joy and singleness of heart with sincerity. This is the air that the church is breathing. This is the way that they were as they're doing the things that they're doing. And this is largely why awe came upon every soul. But why? Why were they like this? It's certainly not because they were homogenous, right? Uniform personalities and cultures across the board. Sometimes, uh, Sometimes the modern church pursues that direction. This is how we're going to grow. This is how we're going, to reach. we're going to reach people who are just like us. and We're going to gather them all up in a room. That's not why this church was thriving. It is because they were unified around the main things. And I'll define that in a minute. And they were humble before one another. And they were willing to lay aside whatever wasn't leading down the path of the main thing. And this led to extreme effectiveness in the task at hand. Did you catch the result of the way that the church was? And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Do you see that? So the thing behind everything listed in that passage, either mentioned explicitly or implied, is that they did it together. The undercurrent that's implicit in the text is this unity of the church. And this seems to be what bred the effectiveness that they experienced. Listen, God is out to see, in in this text, and still now, but God is out to see the truth of the gospel spread, and a unified church that sins seems to be the vehicle for that. What a a beautiful thing. So what's what's the true aroma of the text? Hit it one more time whoops, that ain't it, extreme unity in the midst of diversity marked by gladness and generosity, I'm going to add to it, that led to extreme effectiveness in the task at hand. So that's number one. Number two, what do we allow to distract us from that, like specifically in the text? When you're reading through that 42 through 40, whatever it is, 9, 7, whatever, it's like a game of, You know, which one of these things doesn't belong? And and the thing in the text that often catches our eye first is many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of good conversation to be had around that idea. Good and charitable conversation. But is that the focus of the text? No. This is part of the description of the church when it was just beginning. The focus of the text is also not to give us a prescription for how to program the church, though it does show us what is prioritized. Here's what I mean. Oftentimes, when we read a passage of Scripture, we've been programmed to pick out something that we find to be interesting rather than attempting to trace out the overall direction of the story based on the fuller context. This text is a great example of that. When, when we read through it, our eyes tend to be drawn to the most interesting sentence there. The apostles are performing signs and wonders. What Man, what does that mean? It's a significant part of the early church. It plays a very important role in the story, but, but it often functions in the church as a red herring today, meaning we, we focus on that and lose focus of the main thing. This is a, a simple example of elevating a subject That is less clear to a greater level of importance and shying away from a subject that is very clear and of great significance, even to the point of causing significant division over it. And We might not even realize that we're doing it, but my point is this, how much time and bandwidth do we spend debating issues that are less clear in the text? whose impact on us in the church today is actually up for conversation. How much time and bandwidth do we spend on that? Over and above having serious conversations about whether or not we're taking the Great Commission seriously in our church in our day. If we can zoom out a little bit, you can trace the trajectory of the text from, from the Great Commission through Acts 1 through Acts 2. So, so let's just quickly kind of, kind of do that. Last week we celebrated what? Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. And so historically and and biblically, a lot happened between there and what we're looking at now. Right, and, and what was it? Let me give you some highlights. So, great commissions given by Christ. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He says some other stuff too. Then he tells them in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the end of the earth. Then he ascends to heaven. Then the Holy Spirit comes down, causes the apostles to do that speaking in tongue, tongues thing. And all uh, different sorts of languages um, uh, happen to be addressed. Um, because of all different sorts of people who were present. But if you track that story from the Great Commission through this portion of Acts, you'll see it's actually going somewhere. It's not just a random, disconnected series of thoughts or events that happen. Like, like there is a trajectory, there's a path that the author is trying to get us to follow. But our love of hearing is tr- is trying to get us to veer off track, to focus on something that is part of the story, but is not the aim of the story. You follow me? I'm going to try not to beat this to death, but you get different answers from different people when you ask a question like, what's the most significant thing that happened when the Holy Spirit came down. Many are going to answer signs and wonders, especially speaking in tongues. That did happen. Others might answer, well, it was conviction of sin. That, that did happen too, significant parts of the story. But they serve what I think is the greater part of, of the narrative. Peter tells us, here's, here's what this means. This thing that you're seeing, these people speaking in weird languages because the Holy Spirit came down, here's what it means. Uh, this is in 2, 14 through 21. Uh, I'll just give you some points. He basically says, this means that we're living in the last days. That's a section of history where God is up to something in particular, and it's leading directly into his his return. Number two, that God is prepared to pour out his Spirit on all flesh. That's, That's significant. That's new. There's a different thing happening. Number three, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Guys, this is humongous. This is huge. And then four, you put all that together, and you see very clearly that this thing is meant to go worldwide so here to sum it up jesus told them that 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 was coming he equipped them to do it gave them the spirit then what then they did what any serious spirit empowered christian does they got busy spreading the gospel Starting with Peter, we read some of that message at the beginning. So the the two main things that the coming of the Spirit seem to be facilitating in this text, the main things, the proclamation of the gospel, leading to the establishment of the church, and then you see the unity of the people of God, the members of this newly established church. So my point is this. In this text, the modern, modern church often reads it and goes, okay, gospel, 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 great commission, tongues. And before you know it, we're distracted by, by that conversation that's worth having. Does this stuff still apply to us or gifts still active? And we get so fixated on it that we forget the context completely. And, and questions like that become the marker of who's in and who's out. And before you know it, we're just off track, right? Distracted not by something that's, that's not important, but by something that's not the main thing all along failing to consider the fact that this one event is sandwiched between two things that undoubtedly do apply to us. The Great Commission and unity in the church. And the Christian experience up to modern day is explicitly to be bound up into these two things. There's no question about it. So what's the true aroma of the text? What do we allow to distract us from that in the text? And number three, where else do we see this happen in the church today? Let me ask that a little more specifically before I give you a little more generic answer. Um, what matters of secondary... Here's what I'm trying to, to, to ask an answer. What matters of secondary importance do we allow to draw us off track of the aroma of Christ and our pursuit of him together to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. <clears throat> Let me preface these three things by saying this. Um, we live in the new age. People spend a lot of time on their phones. Did you know that you can track how much time you spend on a given app on your phone? Did you know that? So depending on what age you are, it might be Facebook is you know, this many hours a day, TikTok this many hours a day I I wonder if we had an issues of secondary importance in the church tracker we got to come up with a with a catchier name but I'm working on it what would it reveal about how much time and bandwidth we spend chasing the scent of secondary things that have been dragged across our path rather than concerning ourselves with with pursuing the aroma of Christ to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So, so with that in mind, I'm going to give you three things that uh, maybe we spend a little too much bandwidth on instead of the main thing. Number one, secondary doctrinal issues. I love talking about them. I have my own opinions. Some I feel strongly about, some I don't feel strongly about. But these are matters that need to be discussed charitably and in the context of relationship and subordinate to the main thing. Guys, we don't have to agree about everything to pursue the Great Commission together. That's the first thing. I'm going to hit these fast. Number two, differing opinions on cultural matters. we live in a weird world and there's a lot of weird stuff going on out there and some of us are kind of weird ourselves Okay, if we're being honest and, and all of us are not going to get it all right all the time we're just not we're just not but guys we don't have to agree about everything to pursue the great commission together number three Differing opinions in matters of preference. Just think all of the thousands of specific little details of, of the way that the things uh, around us in the church play out. And let me tell you, there are so many, so many tiny details that go into the, the, weekly, uh, the weekly tasks of the church. We don't have to agree about everything to pursue the Great Commission together. And isn't that why we're here? Is that why you're here? Right? To see Christ lifted up in that way to the glory of God. That, that we might tell men who are living in darkness that there's a way out of it. That Christ is the light. That he's, he's, he's given himself to make a way for sinners like us to, to come and know and be right with a holy God. Like... Like he's drawing men and women from all different backgrounds together to be a unified body. He's doing it. And and here's the craziest part. He wants you to be a part of it. Here's the craziest part. He knows everything about me. And he wants me to be a part of it. What grace, what power, what kindness. Guys, hear me. I'm not saying we shouldn't have opinions. I'm not even saying we shouldn't express them. I am saying that we need to use that issues of secondary importance tracker. And when when we do choose to express concerns, we should do it charitably and in the context of relationships. So, what's the true aroma of the text? What do we allow to distract us from that? Where else do we see this happening in the church today? Number four, what's the solution? What's the solution if If this is something that that you're battling or that I'm battling, what's, what's the solution? Uh, if it's something that a church is battling, what's the solution it, it, if it's true that the early church experienced this extreme unity in the midst of diversity marked by gladness and generosity, here's the million-dollar question. Why? Why were they so, so unified? Francis Chan wrote a great book years back called You and Me Forever, Marriage in Light of Eternity. And in that book, he gave what, what he believes and I, I agree with him. What he believes uh, is the secret to Christians having good marriages. I guess it would really be for anyone to have a good marriage. And the answer is probably different than what you might expect. It wasn't knowing each other's love languages. That's fine, it's useful, it's fine. It wasn't sharing each other's hobbies and interests, Com- compatibility in that sense. Those are also good, also good. But that's probably more on the pop psychology side than the Bible side. Here's what he claimed in his book. He claimed that the secret to a good marriage, for for Christians or for anyone, is instead of spending all your time, effort, and energy, and emotion focusing on each other or on your own happiness, you focus on living life on mission for Jesus together. And isn't that what the church is supposed to be? Like, instead of looking at each other and going, man, you're ugly and weird. Like, like, why not focus on that instead? Like, we've been baptized into one another, inseparably joined together for all eternity. Marriages end at death. But the union of Christian brothers and sisters does not. When, listen, when soldiers are side by side down in the trenches, the enemy's <laughs> knocking on their door, threatening to overtake them, they're getting ready for an all-or-nothing push. They, they don't huddle up first to make sure everybody agrees and likes the same flavor of ice cream. They don't gather around make sure, hey, everybody likes country music and not rock and roll, right? Is everybody here usually outdoorsy? You're indoorsy, you can't come. Outdoorsy types only. That would be silly it wouldn't just be silly it would be insane they gather everybody up and they say this is our mission this is where we're going the enemy's out there now let's go the church loses unity because we forget who we're here to fight and what it is that we're fighting for we we can become so eaten up by ineffectiveness because we just can't stop friendly firing on each other Here's the thing, Jesus Christ is the aroma of the Bible making its way in one direction down the path. It's one aroma moving along the trail in one direction. And the church should be in pursuit, living life on mission for Jesus together so that we can see every place from our hometown to the nations reached with the good news that Christ died to save sinners. And we have to be disciplined enough to stay on that original Trail without getting distracted by something of lesser importance that we allow to dominate the space instead of the main thing. And so I am begging you, church, don't get distracted. Don't give up on each other. May we continue to be a church that's willing to lay aside secondary issues as we commit our lives together to pursuing the fulfillment of the Great Commission together. And may we experience that extreme unity in the midst of diversity marked by gladness and generosity that leads to extreme effectiveness in the task at hand, being the Great Commission. And may we ever be glad and generous, marked by exuberant, intensive joy and singleness of heart. I want to read one, one more passage of Scripture as... As I wrap up and prepare to pray, um, Ephesians 2, 13 through 19, uh, it says this, But now, and this has a specific context, but I feel like it applies to us today. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and "...has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you. I pray that through through a a flawed delivery and deliverer of the word, that, that, Lord, your spirit would just work your spirit would work. May we become a glad and generous people over and above, way more so than we ever have been in in the past. Lord, press us into the next era of unity in in this church, Lord, at Indian Creek. Thank you for being kind to us. Thank you for the work that you've already done to prepare a way um, for us to even be where we are here this morning, Lord. We love you so much. You're so good to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.